Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on Substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy. For listeners, viewers, readers of The Common Bridge on Substack, on your podcast outlet, on YouTube TV, you know that we have had past guests that were senior law enforcement leaders, and we've had a good number of law school professors to help inform us about the issues of the day and the policies. But this is the first time that we have hosted a guest who is both a senior law enforcement leader and a professor at a law school. And it's an important time in our nation on laws, law enforcement, equal application of the law at the federal level, the state level, the municipal level. Uh, So we're privileged to have with us today, Mr. Andrew Arena. Andy, welcome to the Common Bridge. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, Rich, uh, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Your background is amazing. You were raised in Detroit. You joined the FBI as a special agent some time ago. You worked on general crime, organized crime. You were assigned to Los Angeles and then in Cleveland, where you focused on systemic public corruption and organized crime. And then they put you in charge of the FBI office in Detroit. And later you were promoted to the chief of the international terrorism operations sections. And your special agent in charge of the New York division of the FBI. And after you left the FBI, you joined as executive director of the Detroit Crime Commission. And you're also a professor at Cooley Law School in the Homeland Security Program. So what are you doing in your free time with that on your agenda? Well, I, you know, probably the thing I'm proudest of, I, I'm a middle school basketball coach. So I also I also do that. And I, I really do enjoy that. I've got uh, my two youngest daughters are, are basketball players. Actually, one's playing in college now, and one will probably be playing in two years in college. So I, nice. I, really, I really, really enjoy that. So yeah, on top of all of that, I do find some time to do that and golf a little bit. Great. So with your background and, and your biography, any other personal insights you'd like to share with the audience of The Common Bridge? You know, Rich, as you said, I mean, I'm born and raised in, in Detroit. My my family, my, my brother, my sister-in-law, my uncle were Detroit police officers. So I've kind of got this law enforcement uh, background kind of flowing through my blood. So, you know, this was something when I went to law school, I tell people I had no intention of ever practicing law. Uh, it's a great education. It, it helps you see the world a different way. Uh, you know, they think like a lawyer, right? Uh, you know, so I think the you know the analytical capabilities that it gives you really helps you in in life. But uh, it, it helped me every single day uh, that I was with the FBI, and it still helps me today. Now that I'm teaching, that's a great insight. What is the Detroit Crime Commission? What exactly is the function? It's a nonprofit, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, we're a, we're a 501c3 non for profit organization. Uh, we were founded by a group of businessmen and attorneys here in Detroit who kind of wanted to bridge the gap between law enforcement and the community, help help make Southeast Michigan a little bit safer and a little bit better place to live. So we do a lot of analytical work. We do uh, we act as a fiscal agent. So the Rape Kit Initiative with Kim Worthy and the and the uh, 
Wayne County prosecutor, uh, we negotiated the contracts to get those rape kits. Uh, and, and for your viewers who don't, aren't aware, there was 12,000 rape kits found in the Detroit Police Laboratory years ago. There had never been, uh, well, nothing had ever been done with them, never been tested, never been analyzed. So we were able to to get those analyzed and now the follow-up. Uh, so we go out and we get money uh, to pay for the tests being, uh, the tests um, being looked at. We also uh, have been able to hire or help Kim Worthy's office hire investigators, prosecutors to actually follow up, right? Once you find out uh, that, that this is the person who committed these rapes. And, and Rich, many of them are, are serial rapists. I mean, they there are a number of serial rapists in, I think, uh, almost half the state. Every I think over uh, 80% of the states in the United States have links to the rape kits here in Detroit. So, we, you know, we act as a, a fiscal agent, financial agent, do a lot of analytical work, predictive uh, law enforcement, you know, when and where crime may occur. So, you know, I always like to say uh, law enforcement speaks Chinese and the community speaks French and they don't always uh, aren't always able to communicate correctly, which is one of the problems I think we we certainly have with with law enforcement today. Indeed, law enforcement's an incredibly difficult job. On the rape kits, anything that was able to result in apprehensions and convictions? Oh, you know what? I, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's it's an incredible amount of apprehensions and convictions have come off of this program. And as I said, uh, just identifying serial rapists, um, it, it's really been a very successful program. It's something we're we're very proud of. And uh, you know, if you never get Kim Worthy on here, uh, she'll talk for two hours about the success. She loves it. I would both love to have Kim Worthy on this show. I mean, I would never want to be crosswise with Kim Worthy. She's quite a prosecutor. One of the things that's been in the news a lot lately, and I published on it, and my current episode of The Common Bridge is, is kind of a pseudo interview with President Biden about gun laws. You've heard some of the changes that have been proposed, more background checks, raising the age to get a automatic rifle, red flag laws. Based on what you've experienced, are these gun laws heading in the right direction or are they not really hitting the target. It's a good first step, Rich. Um, maybe a baby step, right? I, I don't know that it's quite enough. I think um, if, from what I'm seeing and what I've been reading the last couple of days, it's almost like it makes us feel good, like we're doing something about it. I think it's a good first step, but I just think there's so much more out there. There's so much that can be put on the table that, you know, as, uh, as, Good Americans as adults, we, we could have a, a, a very good discussion about and maybe come up with some some solutions, right? Maybe some compromises, which is unheard of in this country, right, today. Uh, compromise is, is a forgotten word. Indeed. And I've advocated for something that I believe would pass Second Amendment scrutiny called graduated licensing, just like we do with driving privileges and airplanes and fireworks and medical practice that, you know, if you want to get a, a firearm, great, but show that you can competently handle it, show that you know how to store it. And you don't get to have the most powerful weapon on the market as your first gun. And so there's a period of time where you're observed, you can show that you can handle more powerful weapon. I mean, think about this. Pilots rarely have a misuse of an airplane, very rarely. And it's because of the regulations that we put in. Doesn't stop anybody from becoming a pilot, wouldn't stop anybody from owning a gun, but it'd keep the gun away from the people that shouldn't have it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, a, a pilot learns that a Cessna 
uh, single prop doesn't get into a jumbo jet. You know, Rich, I, I this is all I carry with me right here. We this is a copy of the U.S. Constitution. Yes, I carry this everywhere with me. And you know, I am a gun owner. I am a I, I because of what I did for a living. Uh, I hunt. I like to hunt pheasant and grouse. Um, and so I've been a, a gun owner. I think I got my first shotgun when I was like 16. Now my father purchased the gun and made sure I knew how to handle it. And I wasn't just allowed to run out anytime I wanted with the gun alone. But, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a, a proud gun owner. I, I understand the second amendment. I support the second amendment, you know, but I always like to read people. What does the second amendment really say? You know, most people, most uh, gun advocates will focus on the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. They forget the first sentence, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. So, you know, when the U.S. Constitution was written, when the Bill of Rights was written, um, you know, 1789, in the early 1790s, there were 20,000 British soldiers across the Detroit River waiting to invade. We didn't have a well-established U.S. Army, right? We didn't have armed forces that we have today. And so, you know, it was within that environment that the Second Amendment was was drafted. And I think people forget that. They forget the history. They forget that first the first part of the Second Amendment. Right. So, um, you know, when we talk about gun rights, the right to bear arms, um, yeah, to hunt, to to uh, for sporting, for competition. Some people um, uh, they like to collect them. I mean, that, that, those are all great, great things, right? But we really need to discuss, as you said, when when people are able to to own a weapon, at what age, at what training. And I'm I always talk about gun ownership responsible. There's a term that needs to be there, responsible. And we don't think about that. So, you know, I think all of those things kind of go into uh, the preamble to the discussion that we need to have as adults. I am in strong agreement with you. And that if you read the entire Second Amendment, nothing that says an 18 year old walking in and getting an automatic rifle and a thousand rounds of ammo is helping uh, our secure free state. It's just not. And that intent of making sure that we're able to be armed has been lost in this free fire, which is crazy. And again, most gun owners are responsible. We have, I think, 300 million firearms in private hands, including over 11 million of the what would be classified assault rifles. It seems like we'd have a lot more incidents, but we've got to keep it away from the people that shouldn't have them. And I think gun owners should be responsible for securing their weapons. Again, I've talked about this, editorialized about it. And, you know, even if you're using it for home security, you can keep it in a quick release safe, out of sight. It is secure. Nobody else can walk up and get it. And it's still, you can get, it's as accessible as putting it in your nightstand drawer. I tell people this all the time. When I talk about responsible gun ownership, it's a lot of it is the training, right? When I was with the FBI, I qualified uh, four times a year uh, to, to carry my handgun outdoor. And then we shot indoor ranges, but we also shot combat courses and we shot uh, f- firearm simulators, uh, training, 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 training. Because as I tell people all the time, you know, until you've actually been shot at, um, when you're put in that situation and the pressure and the stress is on you, it's a little bit different than standing at a, you know, five feet away and shooting at a paper target, right? So, um, you know, training, 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 that's how you get better. And most people, 
in this country, I would say the vast majority that have a concealed weapons permit um, will train enough to get the permit. And as you said, put that gun in a nice, <laughs> nice stand for home protection. If something, God forbid, something bad happened, I, who knows what would happen? Exactly right. And, you know, when you're talking about your training, the best in the world with the FBI, uh, it was, I don't know, nine years old. We went to Washington, D.C., and we went to the FBI headquarters. Remember, I'm, so I'm a little guy. And they demonstrate the you know handguns on the range. And then one of the agents comes out with a machine gun. And he talks about it and he says, now for your safety and comfort, I'll fire in the opposite direction. (laughs) And he tore up the target. So, you know, as a nine-year-old, I was quite impressed with that. But, you know, something about the gun laws. In recent months, we had a horrible tragedy in Oxford, Michigan. And a very troubled young man was given a firearm, according to reports, by his parents. The parents have been charged with involuntary manslaughter. They seem culpable. Are they, in the eyes of the law, are the parents responsible in some way for the death of four children and, and the wounding of others? So, yeah, I've talked to a lot of attorneys, uh, defense attorneys uh, on, on this point, Rich, and it, it's going to be um, it's going to be a long road for, for, for the defense to, to make that case. It's going to be a difficult um, because they're going to have to show. I mean, obviously, parents have a certain duty and responsibility in raising their children. But what is that, right? Is it the same for all of us? And so, you know, did these folks breach that responsibility and that duty? Um, you know, it's going to be very, very difficult. And I think it's also going to open the door um, for parents, you, you know, being liable for a, a myriad of other things. Right. So, um, you know, I think I think it was. Um, I think most of us would say, yeah, this is a terrible situation. We want to hold people responsible. Um, but I think the Oakland County prosecutor may have may have stretched a little bit on this but from a legal standpoint. You know, I think from a moral standpoint, as parent, I've, I'm a parent of three daughters uh, and I'm in there. It, I always tell them, Rich, there is no uh, right to privacy in my house. The United States Constitution is suspended in my house. You know, I'm going to look at your Internet browser i'm going to look at your social media activity live with it right i am responsible for you but not all parents are like that so you know i think it's the duty and responsibility of the parents and you know we all have a kind of a little different definition i think the law's definition uh is going to make it kind of difficult to, to, to prove this i guess now that i think about it it'd be like uh, you know parents buy a 16 year old a very fast car and they wrap it around a tree or hit somebody where does their liability end for, uh, you know, a potentially foreseeable accident of, of too fast of a car for a young driver? But we've had some other things happen in Michigan. So acquittals and hung juries for some men accused of threatening Governor Whitmer. There were allegations of the FBI informants that were egging them on. And we had, I know the FBI had one informant that they couldn't use because he had so tarnished himself with his behavior. In your experience, to the extent that you can talk about it, was the FBI's conduct in this investigation unusual or normal? And how did it get so convoluted that we can't figure out who the good guys are and who the bad guys are? Well, you know, I think a lot of it, Rich, goes to the actions of the case agents. Um, You know, you really have to look at who you assign to certain cases. So when when I was the uh, head of the FBI in Youngstown, Ohio, for instance, um, we opened the case 
on a, a U.S. congressman. And so, you know, I didn't just pick the next guy on the list. I, you know, I kind of really looked at the agents I had, their experience, their expertise, what they brought to the table and picked who I thought would be the best two people. So, you know, I think that some of the baggage that that uh, the agents involved had uh, certainly contributed, contributed to this. You know, listen, it's it's the job of the, the defense attorneys to. Uh, raise reasonable doubt, right? And I think the defense attorneys um, are did a very good job of it in this case. I think, however, the FBI um, unknowingly or unwittingly actually gave them a lot of the reasonable doubt to work with, right? So I think that that was probably part of the problem was who you know who was actually running this case, what was their what was their background, what baggage did they bring? um in into the prosecution i say the defense was very did a very good job of, of kind of mucking the, the waters up and as you said really clouding it up as to who the bad guys and who the good guys are again i have a lot of faith in juries they're the only ones that hear all the evidence you know, see all the testimony and you know they generally get it right so i had two guys that were in jail for a year and a half uh acquitted free and two guys that are back in jail waiting for perhaps another trial and I just asked myself, you know, is the public interest being served? I certainly we want the FBI and all law enforcement to investigate threats against the governor or, you know, anybody elected. And if they find a crime, we want them prosecuted, but we don't want them making a crime that's not there. And that seems to be the case with this one. Yeah, it, it could, and it could be. You know, I know that. Um, so when I uh, you mentioned earlier, I teach uh, national security law at Cooley. Uh, they have a master's program in national security, so I teach a terrorism class. And um, you know, my my wife says uh, I'm the Forrest Gump of terrorism. That you know, a lot of the, the you know from nine eleven on, I was involved or had uh, uh, some input into those cases. Um, and you know, she tells me I shouldn't be insulted by that, but I've seen the movie. But, um, you know, I so I have I, I did have a lot of experience in those cases. Um, you know, a lot of, of uh, folks in the Muslim community would accuse the FBI of entrapment. Right. And the definition of entrapment is, you know, if but for the actions of the government, the person would not have, have ever even thought of doing this, uh, would not have had the wherewithal to do it. And there, there were a number of cases from 9-11 up until, uh, up until now where the FBI has identified uh, potential uh, terrorists who, are, who have the desire to act, right, and then use informants. So, you know, you have to differentiate between uh, the use of informants. Listen, the FBI has used informants forever in everything they do, organized crime, public corruption. Uh, but you have to make sure that you're not uh, orchestrating what's going on, right? Um, the informant's kind of along for the ride, not driving the car. And so, and that's, that's a, um, you know, that's a tricky proposition sometimes, but that's on the case agent. You've got to make sure things are not getting out of, uh, getting out of line. Yeah. So I, I'm kind of reading between the lines on your, your, your view there. And I appreciate that insight. Another case that's been in the public eye, Mark Sussman, attorney, Perkins Coy in Washington, D.C. area. He's charging billable hours to the Democratic National Committee and to the Hillary Clinton Election Committee. Is acquitted of lying to the FBI, although there's sworn testimony from James Baker, the FBI's general counsel. And then there's a text message with Sussman saying, hey, I'm 
you, you know, I'm not coming to you on behalf of any client. I'm just coming as, as a citizen on a completely bogus claim of a some of a server in Trump Tower communicating with a server with Alpha Bank in Russia. And and just for the record, when that story broke, I'm a I'm an IT guy back since the 1970s. I'm like, what are you even talking about? Like, it's just not technically possible what they're alleging. But Sussman's acquitted, but the evidence seems to point the other way is what standard was missed here? Yeah. So, you know, Title 18 United States Code Section 1001 makes it a felony to lie to an FBI agent when you are being interviewed, when you're asked a question. And in my career in the FBI, that was always a slam dunk. Right. And I used to preface it to tell people, look, I'm going to ask you these questions. Um, first thing they teach you in law school is you don't ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. Now, a lot of times you don't know the answer, but you're you know, you want them to think, you know, the answer. That was a slam dunk. If somebody lied to you and you had this solid evidence to show, hey, this person lied to the FBI, as you said, it was really there was no argument. Right. It was a done deal. I think we've seen and I think this is kind of um, indicative of what's going on in our country right now with, you know, people, uh, you know, there's a minority that's far to the left and there's a minority that's very, very far to the right. uh, And they're very loud. So, you know, I don't know if that's what the jurors are hearing. Uh, There's jurors who who believe that or think that way on these uh, on these jury pools. I don't know. But but it's not a slam dunk anymore. Right. So something else is entering into it. And, and Rich, I don't really know what it is. Right. But something is is swaying jurors away from just looking purely at applying the law to the facts. Right. Something else is is um, muddying the, the water. So I would maybe speculate that we're we're kind of lost that moral compass of what's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. It's well, if it's who's doing it is really the de- line of demarcation. And you look. Kevin Kleinsmith, a, a lawyer for the FBI, falsified an email, changed the words to make it look like there should be a investigation of Carter Page and was convicted of it and now has since been reinstated as a lawyer in good standing in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And I'm wondering, why isn't he doing a little jail time for perjury and falsifying evidence? I, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. It's not, it's not a good message. Uh, being sent. I, I would agree with you there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I was part of my job here as a host of this. I watched C-SPAN. And so I'm watching the Senate Intelligence Committee and James Comey, a former director of the FBI, Sally Yates, okay, who was acting attorney general for a little bit, Christopher Wray, who was uh, head of the FBI also, when asked under oath if they would have sought a FISA warrant on Carter Page based on the Steele dossier, they all answered no, although they they did do it. And I thought, well, what's changed? And as far as I can understand the timeline, the only thing that's changed was now the public knew that 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 reporting was completely false. So I I just wondered, you know, with your long experience and distinguished career, has the FBI damaged their reputation? And if they haven't, great. But if they have, what can we do to bolster people's confidence that the scales of justice are balanced? So, you know, I think that if you look back historically at the FBI, there have been ebbs and flows, right? Uh, there have been times where the, the Bureau's reputation has been stellar, and there have been times where it has not been uh, up to par. And, I, you know, if you could look at 
you know, the gangster era of the 1930s. You can look at the um, uh, counterintelligence pro Quintel pro of the 1960s when the FBI was um, was spying on uh, anti-war civil rights leaders. You know, that, that those are not uh, stellar moments in the history of, of the FBI. So it, what happened to bring the FBI back into relevance and into uh, the good graces of the American people, right? Look, the FBI's job is they are the they are the primary domestic intelligence agency of this country. They are one of the front lines in protecting democracy and protecting us from foreign threats, right? So we need them. We need a good, solid FBI. Uh, politicians, going back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, John F. Kennedy, I mean, some of the most trusted and beloved presidents of, of, uh, in this country's history have sought to abuse the powers and use and abuse the powers of the of the FBI. So it, it starts with the director. The director has got to be uh, to stand strong. Um, I was at FBI headquarters when Bill Clinton asked uh, Louis Free, the then director of the FBI, for person uh, for files on certain political uh, enemies, and Louis Free stood strong and said, "No way," and uh, was threatened to be fired. The president of the United States didn't speak to Louis Free for years uh, because of that, um, but he stood strong and said, "I'm not going to abuse the powers of the FBI." So that's what we need. We need leadership. Uh, because that's you meant you you use the term moral compass, Rich. I use that all the time. I use it with my kids. I use it with my students. I use it with my employees. I brought every new agent in the FBI who worked for me in, and I talked about your moral compass and how to follow it. Don't let politics ever enter into your decision. Um, you know, there was a point where uh, an unnamed vice president of the United States wanted to be fired from the FBI because I stood strong and said, "We're not doing that." Um, I had uh, people in the Department of Justice trying to order me to lie on uh, FISA applications. We're not doing that. Right. So you have to, as you said, it's a moral compass is a great term. You've got to stick strong to that. And I think that it comes from the top and the leadership of, of the FBI. And that's what they need. So, you know, you've been at this like over four decades. So you've seen arcs of policing and prosecution and punishment You've touched on some of the things that have changed during your career. What else stands out? And, and more importantly, are we headed in the right direction in terms of our policing, prosecution, and punishment? So I'll, I'll start with policing. I think that um, as a nation, you know, we're, we're seeing a number of issues around the country with use of force. Now, you know, I will say right up front, defunding the police is not the way to go. We've seen that, right? It's not going to work. I think personally, the discussion needs to be more of how do we um, how do we fix it? How do we change policing? Right. And I think it starts, Rich, with, um, you know, who are we who are we out there trying to get to be police officers? Right. Um, How are we bringing them into the fold? Training. Um, many police departments in the country still are very militaristic in how they train their officers, right? It's a pseudo-military. Um, we need to be a little bit more, um, you know, you are, you are here to protect and serve. You're not, I always tell uh, law enforcement, we're not occupying armies, right? You're here to protect. You never forget that, you know, protect and serve. What is your, what is your role? 
Um, it's, it's psychological counseling. Um, you know, police, law enforcement, Rich, see the worst of the worst every single day. What, what support are they getting? Right. You can become very jaded very quickly in your life. If that's all you're seeing. Right. You can become an occupying army. So what support are we giving them? You know, so it, as I said, it goes back to uh, how are we recruiting? Who are we recruiting? How are we training them? How are we training them on the job? Uh, and what support are we giving them? The other part is, and I was very involved in this in the FBI, is that you know, we call it community policing, but it's the relationship. Listen. The, the community is never going to 100 percent trust law enforcement and law enforcement is never going to accept everything the community wants. Um, but they have got to be able to talk and share information. As I said, that's one of the things that crime commission crime commission does. So, you know, to me, it's we need to re-envision how we we police. And I don't think that's a it's a big change. I think that it could be done fairly easily. Just changing the mindset of some people as to how, how they approach it. That a terrific insight. I was in Florida, and, and this may not be the exact words, but the pulled up next to a sheriff deputy's SUV, and they had their seal on it, and their motto was "We fight as one." And I thought, well, what does that mean? Who are you fighting? And you know, who's the we in the in the fighting as one? I just thought it was unusual. And in Southern California, we saw a black and white pulled up next to us at a convenience store. And it said community officer is a woman officer, not armed at all. And apparently had every power except arrest powers. But instead of sending someone in that might be ready for physical confrontation, that you know she could handle most domestic things and traffic things and those kinds of calls. I always am optimistic that we're going to try some things but at the same time, you see people stuck back in that militaristic mindset. Yeah. And, you know, in that um, that term, we fight as one. Now, if, if I was the chief of that department, I would keep that mantra. But I would say the one is law enforcement, the community, we're all together. Right. That that's the message. I'm not sure that that's what that department meant. I, I don't know what they meant. I didn't look into it any further. I just thought eh, they might want to clean that up. <laughs> There's something there. I'm going to jump to a, a little different topic, and this is something that troubles me. It's a conviction or acquittal in the media and its impact on society. By way of example, today we have the very serious January 6th hearings going on, and we all observed the conduct of our president. We all heard the words that he said. We saw the results, and I just see the pundits opposite that president's party coming out and saying, oh, yeah, definitely. You need to convict them. Yet at the same time, I see a weariness from people because we have a long list of things that were supposedly going to be criminal that turned out to be dead ends and and nothing. And, you know, story gets moved on. You know, you're in a public place with the work that you're doing with the Crime Commission. You're teaching lawyers. You're keeping us safe from terrorists and protecting the homeland. Do you ever get into this conviction and acquittal in the media and and its impact on our society? I mean, what is it that we can't wait for all the facts to come out in sworn testimony and in evidence that's actually presented? Yeah, it's one of the things, Rich, that it frustrates me most in my life um, to, to see that. And um, I, I think you really hit on, on what the, the issue is. It's the 24-hour news cycle that we live in now, right? 
We want answers. Now, I tell people this all the time. The initial, and I'll give you an example. The first bank robbery I went to in Syracuse, New York, I'm a brand new FBI agent. I'm the only agent who shows up. I interview all five of the witnesses, all right, three tellers and two customers. Every one of those witnesses gave me a different description of the assailant. Um, he was anywhere from five foot six to six foot four. He was <laughs> white. He was black. He was Hispanic. He was skinny. He was heavy set. The only thing that all five, uh, five of those witnesses had in common, they could describe the gun to a T, right? Yeah. So that's what that's what they saw, right? So I, I caution everybody wait for the information because the initial information is always wrong. And we're seeing that in, in Evalde, Texas right now, right? Uh, the, the media now is jumping on a law enforcement for the information. Well, you were wrong. Well, you push them to give that information and that you knew that was going to probably be wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. But as you said, we don't have news anymore. Um, we, we have the facts and then we have five talking heads debating those facts, right? And depending on what station or what news channel it is, they're either going to be conservative or they're going to be progressive, right? And so we don't wait for the facts. We want, we have an insatiable appetite in this country fueled by the 24-hour news cycle. We want to know now what happened. You know what? Let the, that's what the, that's why we have the legal system. You know, let the facts be brought together. Let them be analyzed. Let them be presented to a grand jury and then to a jury. Um, and I think that's the best, safest way for our legal system to work. It doesn't work that way anymore. And Rich, unfortunately, I don't think it'll ever work that way because we are, you know, we're driven by watching CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, whatever your your choice is, right? And they're going to give us. And the other thing about that is if if you're ultra conservative, you're going to watch Fox News. If you're, if you're progressive liberal, you're going to watch MSNBC. And what are they going to tell you? They're going to tell you you're right. On those polar extremes is hilarious when you think about it. And this is not an exaggeration. I just about spit my coffee on my computer screen yesterday because one of the talking head pundits was praising Bill Barr, although they've been smearing the guy for a year. You know, it's like, but now he said what they wanted to hear. So now all of a sudden he's a good guy. Andy, this has been really insightful. What else should we be talking about today that we haven't covered? Um, you know, I, I just think that that really kind of, to me, the overarching issue and, and everything we're talking about, you know, gun safety, school safety, uh, national security, we're, we're just so polarized in this country right now um, that we're, we're, we're unable to really sit down at the table and have the adult conversation. You know, if we want to sit down and we want to, for instance, we want to talk about gun safety. Um, let's talk about everything. Let's not run to our polar opposite corners, uh, and wait for the referee to tell us to come out fighting, right? Let's, let's talk about, uh, as you said, uh, you know, uh, graduated gun ownership, uh, training, um, you know, extended magazines, uh, mental health. You know, I always, we talk about the state of Michigan, you know, many, many years ago, Governor Engler, uh, in a cost-cutting move, stopped, you know, we got rid of all uh, mental health facilities in the state of Michigan. We got out of it. And many other states then followed suit because it saved millions, billions of dollars, right? You know, the, the largest healthcare facility in the state of Michigan is the Wayne County Jail. That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. So mental health is a part of this. And, and 
you know, in, and it goes hand in hand with the with stopping it and also with the background check. So, you know, let's let's be able to as a country sit down and put all of these things on the table and let's have an adult conversation. Let's see what we can compromise and come up with to save our kids, uh, to save our country, to, to, to the national security of this country. Um, but what just it troubles me is we're not able to do that. And that's it's really sad. Uh, it saddens me and infuriates me at times. <laughs> But, um, you know, until we can do that, Rich, um, you know, we're just con- we're going to continue down a path that's not going to be a good outcome for us. If you have somebody far over here on the right, somebody far over here on the left, there's no way of cajoling, convincing, pull this person all the way here or for this person to argue and, and pull this person here. But we need to start in the middle. Like, can we agree it's crazy? for an 18-year-old to walk into a gun store and buy an automatic rifle and a 1,000 rounds of, of ammunition. Like, let's just start there. That's just not a good thing. Your comments about the Wayne County Jail being mental health facility, we've had Judge Milton Mack on our show a couple of times, and he's quite the advocate about mental health, and he's gone through chapter and verse about how that happens. And even talking about case studies where someone didn't want to be released from jail because they were getting mental health services and and medication inside and they wouldn't get it outside. So I I concur the adult conversation. That's what we're trying to do here on the Common Bridge. And you've added substantially to that dialogue. And I, I know our listeners and our viewers and our readers are going to enjoy hearing this. And I, I thank you for putting your time with us this morning. Andy, any closing thoughts for our audience? Well, no, you know, the only thing I would say, Rich, is kind of following up on, on what I just said. You know, I, I think that those – I like to think those extremists on either side are, are small in number. I think they're very – I think they're smaller than what we think. They're very vocal. Uh, they have a few people that listen to them. I think most people in this country, are, I, I hope, are like us, right? They're a little bit more centrist. Um, and they just want to live a good, healthy, safe life and live in a country where we respect each other's uh, opinions. Uh, as I tell my law students all the time, Rich, um, y- you know, you don't have to agree with each other. But in my class, you're going to respect each other. And we have some great discussions. Uh, sometimes people change their opinion. They come a little bit more to the center. Sometimes they don't. But at the end of the day, uh, even if they disagree, they still respect each other. And I think that's what we need to to really do in this country, just respect each other. We've had as our guest today on the Common Bridge, Andy Arena, extensive background in law enforcement with the FBI, now teaching at the Cooley School of Law and also executive director of the Detroit Crime Commission. This is Rich Helpy, your host on the Common Bridge, of course, available on Substack. Just look up the Common Bridge on your favorite podcast outlets, and on YouTube TV. And this is Rich Helpy signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Please subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com, where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month please go to substack.com and search for The Common Bridge and subscribe.